The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This week is uh, the week of Buddha's enlightenment. And all over the world, uh, those in the Zen tradition are sitting uh, for a week and will end on the 8th, which is supposed to be the Enlightenment Day. Of course, nobody knows when the Enlightenment Day was, um, but it seemed like a good time to put it because that's when all the other celebrations of light are happening um, at the uh, solstice time when it's so dark. So it has brought me, as usual, to be thinking about Buddha. Um, And about that experience. When I first began to practice, I was so taken with meditation I thought this is this is it doesn't matter what the story is that goes with this. Of course it's it's a, it's a fascinating story but it happened so long ago and in a, another country and if there's any truth at all it, it's true here right here on El Camino Real and in the dingiest little bar the dharma is the dharma wherever. And then I went to India Uh, My husband persuaded me to go to India with him. Um, He was going to do uh, an engineering contribution there about getting water out of a well. Um, And when I got there, I realized, oh, it was a story, but it actually happened. Um, And the the ruins of the monasteries are still crumbling walls, are still there, akin to the tree under which Buddha sat, is there, where he was. They took a piece of the original tree to Sri Lanka And then when the original tree died, they brought a piece of the Sri Lankan tree back to Bodh Gaya. And that's the tree that's there now. Huge. And you can sit under the tree. You can. And that changes the story completely. It's still a story. But then we have to see that in some amazing way that story has come all the way up to this point right here tonight and brought us to this position of sitting, of examining the mind, of exploring this and finding what we might call uh, the rest of it. 
until we sit, we think we know. It's, it's pretty obvious, and we go to school and we're taught what the language is and what our names are and what to expect. And um, even though it's all mysterious, it's all mysterious right in front of us until we begin to sit. And with Buddha sitting, suddenly the mind itself becomes the mystery. The presence isn't just this tiny moment, but is connected to all the tiny moments going all the way back to Bodhgaya and Buddha's experience. That's how we come to be here and to sit together. It seems like a long, long way, but really 2,000 years isn't very long at all in terms of human history. And I sometimes think as I read the paper and think about how we're doing, that we're still in kindergarten in some way still struggling to um, make the kind of effort that it takes to find ways to live in harmony, in truth, with compassion. And those are things we can't paste onto ourselves. We can't just get up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to pull on my boots and go out and be compassionate today. It doesn't work like that. It really requires this kind of uh, slowing down, quieting down, humbling down, so that we aren't imagining that we're in charge of everything. We're not imagining that we know what's going to happen next. Because the truth is we don't. We can't. And so from that point of view then, as we sit, we sit in a kind of of receptive mode. Instead of the reaching out and manipulating everything. We sit to receive. And as we sit, we're actually sending at the same time. And we begin to feel how, how this works as this mind-body entity that we are. That with our sense, all our senses that take in the light and the air and the smells and the feel of things so intense and so wonderful in this body that, that our experience of life is uh, transformed as we sit. It becomes everybody's life. We are breathing with everyone. And so as we 
breathe in, we've taken in everything. And as we breathe out, we're breathing out all the goodness that's in us. All the fineness that we are. In Zen, we sit with our hands like this. This is called the cosmic mudra, where the thumbs are just together and it makes this sort of oval. Um, It brings both sides of the body together in a very powerful way. Um, And sometimes people say that since it's resting against the belly like this, that the wisdom in the belly is just pouring out as you sit. I like to think about that. Um, Who knows? But this truly is the seat of, of wisdom. And as you notice in the sitting, as you breathe, often in the beginning the breath is very much high up in the chest. But the longer you sit, the longer the breath becomes, and the deeper it becomes, and the more calm it becomes. All by itself. You don't have to make it do that. You can't. So Buddha sitting under the tree wasn't just imposing some things on himself. It was enduring, one, but it was also submitting. Submitting to the wisdom of his life and body after trying and trying and trying to impose on himself. He was going to get it. He was going to do it no matter what. And for years, he tried all the different practices, the yogas, the starvation yogas, the uh, humiliation yogas, the staring at the sun yogas, and nothing worked. And so he gave up, you could say, or gave in, and allowed what was to be to be. It sounds a little dramatic, perhaps, but it seems like that's what we do over and over again as we sit. We sit and allow what's going to be to be, breath by breath and thought by thought, siren by siren and train by train, We can't predict those things. We can't control those things. And yet we are those things as we sit. And they're us. It can't be anything else. It's our experience. And so one of the main things about sitting is that it's... um, seems like a private practice and it certainly has an element of being just for myself we all have to do our own practice uh, including teachers so-called teachers um, who are each one practicing hard also from beginning to end there is no end You don't get to some fine place and say, Shazam, now I'm all finished, it's all done. 
there's no all done. Buddha got up from the tree and immediately went to see his friends. And so Buddha had to struggle first before he settled down. And after he settled down, he had to take on all the things in his mind that he hadn't really faced before. And it's called Mara. Um, or temptation. We face a lot of those temptations in our own sitting. Um, It can't be helped. We're human beings and we're full of all kinds of desires and strange thoughts and impulses and feelings. And um, many of them are not very pretty. And Buddha faced them Um, that's a big part of our practice, is allowing ourselves to see what's here, be what's here, even the not very pretty parts. Instead of covering it over and pretending, in this practice there's no pretending. We just be what it is. So Buddha was tempted by using his powers to get lots of money, using his powers to try to control the world, um, using his powers to eat and drink and enjoy as many women as he possibly could. Mara in the story brings up all these things as dancing girls and groaning tables full of food and um, a very dramatic picture. But in fact, it was all in his mind. I met someone um, at at Spirit Rock once who said she had done a retreat in Barrie in which uh, her mind was like a Stephen King novel. (laughs) Sometimes it can turn into something like that. It depends on our conditioning, on our experiences of all kinds. It isn't us. It's just the mind. Um, It chatters on. It makes up stories. It Um, remake stories to make them sound better. Um, It's very clever. Suzuki Roshi used to say, just don't invite your thoughts in for tea. (laughs) They can be just as naughty as you like, but don't get caught by them. It's just thinking. And that's what Buddha saw. He would say, well, I see you, Mara. You're just Mara. And Mara would say, Zounds, he sees me, and then he runs away. Uh, But then he comes back with a new temptation. And then finally Buddha says, I see you. It's you who are doing this. I get it. 
There are many stories in the old old sutras about about Mara. And uh, Mara followed Buddha all Buddha's life. He didn't get pure and clean and get rid of Mara. We never do. Um, it's why it's so important to keep on sitting. There's one story when Buddha was in his little kuti and um, Ananda was taking care of him and someone rapped at the door and Ananda went to the door and looked and he said, oh, it's Mara. Mara said, can I come in? And Ananda said, no, of course you can't come in. And Buddha said, who's there, Ananda? And he said, oh, it's just Mara. I'm sending him away. And Buddha said, oh, why don't you invite him in for tea? And so he came in for tea. It's how we work with our, our, our crazy mind, our impulses, our needs, our desires. We don't have to get, can't get rid of anything. I always think as we age and um, age in practice that we become more and more ourself, more and more who we truly are. It's like we're being cooked down into a really good sauce. Um, very tasty. But that comes from self-knowledge. And that's what Buddha was seeking. Self-knowledge. And not just this small self-knowledge, but how big it is. So that's what I brought um, to speak with you about and wanted to leave enough time for discussion. If you all have questions or something to add um, or subtract, (laughs) please. First you said that Suzuki Roshi said, don't invite your thoughts in for tea. And then Buddha invited Mara in for tea. So what's the difference? Uh, It depends on the situation. Um, If we're trying to escape our thoughts, then it's probably more wholesome to invite them in and face them. Um, But if we're sitting and we're just spinning, thinking all the time and sitting, uh, it's much better just to not invite them in for tea. So one at a time, maybe, is a better way. (laughs) Yes. Um, I thought it was really interesting what you said about that practitioner um, who thought that her meditation practice felt like a Stephen King novel. Because I find that 
when I'm sitting in meditation, I actually listen to a lot of songs in my head or, um, you know, think of things that happened during the day. And it's not until I'm out in the world where those scary thoughts or the judgments and things like that come into effect Mm. and start crowding my mind. And because it's happening out there, that's when it seems to be most difficult to tangle with. So I don't know if through sitting, eventually interacting with thoughts and thinking out there will be something different, or if through sitting over time, those outside thoughts will start to play out in my sitting practice. Do you have any... Yes, I think that's the way it it works. And that um, what you're experiencing in sitting is a distraction. That your mind is throwing up all kinds of interesting things for you so that you won't think about those other things. Um, It's... it's, the, The mind is very clever that way. It can create a whole panoply of itches sometimes in sitting just to keep from um, attending to being, to our own being. Or it'll create, create uh, little images on, in front of you. Um, maybe some of you have seen those little faces or little animals just appear right on the rug in front of you. Um, and it's the mind getting bored or um, wanting to... Mm, not face the truth of things. So it helps to sit longer. Um, A one evening a sit like this is a wonderful thing to do, but longer sitting is even more wonderful and gives you a great deal more to work with. I understand you uh, come mostly from the Zen tradition. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Can you speak a little bit about the difference between meditating with your eyes open and your eyes closed? Uh, Zen is with the eyes open. Yes. I understand. Yes. Um, I've never quite understood uh, the difference. Uh, We're taught in Zen to keep our eyes lowered about 40 degrees so that they're open but they're not looking at anything. So, um, And we look at the wall in Soto Zen. So when we see little animals, they're on the wall. Uh, <laughs> um, but in my practice, I find that sometimes I've closed my eyes without even knowing it. And it's fine Um, I don't see that much difference, frankly. Except the temptation to go to sleep. Closed eyes is a signal to the body to sleep. Um, So I suppose in Vipassana you actually train yourself not to go to sleep. And maybe it's harder not to, because you can easily go to sleep in Zen too, with your eyes wide open. So, I, I, get, I would imagine it's a bit more portable. You don't have to have a, a white wall uh, to meditate. 
Right. Right. It is in that way. But you don't anyway. Buddha sat at the foot of a tree and he must have been looking at the ground. So... He didn't comment on this. It's not in anything that I've ever seen where his eyes were. Much of it was visions of Mara. Yeah. (coughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, what advice? What advice do you have about dealing with the hindrances? Being with what? Dealing with the hindrances. Uh, exactly that. Being with them. Um, acknowledging them. And the closer you can be with them, uh, the more honest you can be with them. Um, Instead of saying, oh, I'm not really, really like that. I say, oh, look at that. Look at that, what I, what I just did, what I am doing. And look at it closely and carefully and forgivingly. Because if we start getting down on ourselves, then we just split and become one one person who wants to be better than she is and another person who is just who she is. And they're not happy together. So it's much, much better to be just the one and accept what's there. And then you have the power to work on it. Once you have willingly accepted how things are, then you can do something about it. That gives you the strength to do it. Because you're not trying to be perfect anymore. We try so hard to be perfect. And our only perfection is our imperfection. And accepting that then makes it possible to live with our hindrances and do something about them. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know what is in it for the mind to be this way, to be distracting like this. Well, it depends on what psychology you understand or have studied. Or, um, I mean, there are many different theories about it, including um, Freud and the whole ego thing. You could say that it's the ego's way of establishing itself, re-establishing itself over and over. Saying, oh, hey, here I am, I'm so important. Here's the big me. Um, Let's not go where these 
unknown places are. Let's just stay right up here on the surface and that's be important. Um, and so uh, there is that aspect of the mind that would rather not be bothered or would rather not <laughs> be very truthful about the way things are and just overlook them as much as possible. And why that is, I'm not sure. Maybe it goes back to our lizard brain. I don't know. (laughs) We're very complicated. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about the mind these days. Study of the brain. What is the mind? Nobody knows. In Zen, they say the mind is Buddha. But then another school of Zen says no mind, no Buddha. So, (laughs) it's just words. We keep trying to talk it, but we can't. It's hopeless. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, how about clinging? <clears throat> it's uh, hard for me to catch myself or understand it. clinging, which is one way of um, releasing the suffering, right? It's suffering. It's suffering. Mm-hmm. Clinging isn't... Um, clinging is not letting go. We can hold on. We need to hold on. We need to stop when there's a red light and go when there's a green light. We need to stay within the the parameters of our life in every single kind of way and enjoy it that way. But when we get to the point where we can't open up our hand and let go, when we keep holding on and saying, well, it was like that yesterday, it was really good yesterday, why isn't it like that today? Why me? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the way to know it's happening is when you start suffering. You think, oh, what am I doing? Have to let it go. And that's really hard. So we can be completely committed to the people that we love, but we don't cling to them. We can be completely committed to our life and our work, but then something is probably going to happen. Uh, A move, an illness, a fall, um, something will happen. 
And we can say, oh, this is terrible, it shouldn't be this way. I want it to be the way it was. Or, thank you very much, let's go with this. But it takes a lot of practice. And a lot of self-knowledge, a lot of not taking oneself so seriously. So that's, that's a big help also. So in a way, you know, if you get a very serious illness and the doctor says, well, we don't know, then you can either get into a panic and hold on tight or you can kiss yourself goodbye and then do everything you can to stay alive. But from the point of view that you don't know. So it's a breathtaking way to live, but it's the true way that we live. It's the truth of it. So you have to be brave. Maybe that's enough. It's um, lovely to see you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh,